I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, as we uh, move to a, a, this portion of the worship service where we are fed by the proclaiming of your gospel, the announcing of the good news, the heralding of your son, Lord, I pray uh, that you would bless us, that you would bless this ministry. Lord, I pray it would be effective. I pray that you would tune our hearts to hear your word as the voice of our good shepherd and that we would turn and follow and trust and treasure the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated? Now we began this series of sermons on the book of 1 Samuel, having finished the book of Ruth, and at the end of the book of Ruth, it telegraphs who the king would ultimately be. It tells us that it would be David, not someone else, and as we read in 1 Samuel, not Saul, it would be David and not Saul. That would be the anointed king whose throne the Lord would establish firmly and eternally and forever. And so we looked at why. Why then would the Lord have himself chosen and anointed Saul to be the king if it was never God's plan for Saul's throne to be established? Saul was the king after the people's hearts. We saw that. He was the king of their own choosing. God knew their hearts better than they did, and he gave them a king with a reign, with a throne, which, with a kind of reign that actually epitomized their hearts and their hearts' desires. It put their hearts on display, Saul's reign did, so that when the king of God's own choosing would reign, his reign and God's plan for him would be compared and contrasted to the throne which was patterned after Israel's hearts. They could see essentially both plans and why God's was infinitely better. And one of the differences that we did notice was that David's reign was a permanent one. We're going to see more of this later on as God adds more and reveals more to this plan of David's throne. Now, this, this reign has many obligations for King David, many expectations. There's many demands on David and his sons to reign in a way that brings glory to God and blessing and redemption to God's people, but which is also accompanied by the eternal and unfailing promises of the Lord God. Saul didn't have such a promise attached to his throne by God. Saul represented God's plan, uh, Israel's plan, which came from their heart. David represented the plan of God, which came from God's heart. And it was a plan that could not fall, which could not fail. It was a plan for royal redemption of God's people that doesn't give permission for sin. But it is a plan which is not ruined by their sin. And as we read the historical accounts of King Saul and now of King David, we see David is the better Messiah than Saul. That is just certainly true. David is a better Messiah than Saul. 
It is a better plan for Messiahship that God made. But we're also going to see that David and Saul are also themselves men who are in need of that royal redemption. We've begun to see this concept of royal redemption through the book of of Ruth. This, This plan for royal redemption is that God would pick one man and he would invest the whole hope of all his people in that man. And whatever that man would do would actually count for all his people. And God would eventually, essentially count all the transgressions of his people against that one man, that royal kinsman redeemer, that he would be given a people, he would possess them as his own in order to redeem them. And we saw that David, God's plan through David's throne, was a better plan for royal redemption. But both Saul and David needed this royal kinsman redemption. They were both in need of it. Saul's kingship, his messiahship, was characterized by rejection of the Lord. And also by its temporary nature. It was very temporary. It was what a a human could do with God's help. This is what a king, a human king, could do with God helping him. As long as that kind of a throne could last, and we've seen that throne could last one generation. And so Saul was given the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God in a temporary way until he proved unworthy, and then it was removed from him. It was an anointing to help the people of God. But the Spirit, given for the purpose of helping the people of God, was taken from Saul. But David's reign and anointing were characterized by the permanence of the promise of God and a permanent work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit did not depart from David, and God's plan to redeem his people through the reign of David's throne could not be stopped by sin, not even by David's sin. Saul's reign was was kind of an illustration of the theory, God helps those who help themselves. It's a reign which God helps, a plan of redemption which God merely blesses it so long as it's worthy. And when God rejected Saul, he was rejecting that foolish, wicked notion that God helps those who help themselves. He helps people save themselves. He helps people get saved. But David's reign represented God's own plan, and it rests solely on God's own worthiness and faithfulness. And so here we see that these men, David and Saul, represent the people who are in need of of redemption. Both men, in the events of their lives, which we're going to be reading today, they experience great trials and temptation. They threaten, these, these trials and temptation threaten their ability to endure and to survive. And we're going to see in King Saul what happens to a man who is trusting in a plan which doesn't depend completely on the worth and promises of God. And we'll see in King David what happens to a man who's trusting in a plan which does depend completely on the worth and promises of God. For Saul, the plan of Israel's hearts, the Holy Spirit is given so long as Saul holds up, holds on to faithfulness. 
And so long as Saul clings to God, but with David, the Holy Spirit's permanent work is what causes him to repent and cling to God and God's promises. So brothers and sisters and unbelieving guests, this is extremely helpful for us to watch, to see these things lived out. Because I fear that many are inclined to prefer the plan of King Saul. A plan which trusts our own ability to be faithful with God's help. Thanks, God. And we need to remember that this is foolish. God rejects that plan very publicly. He puts it to open shame in this particular passage when he rejects King Saul and hands him over to demons. But King David's throne was inherited and finally fulfilled in his descendant, A thousand-ish years later, the Lord Jesus Christ. A plan for redemption worked for the people of God, which depended completely on God's own strength, God's own worthiness, and the ability of God to keep his promises. And that's what it means to be a Christian. To reject that God helps those who help themselves plan, and embrace that the salvation is of God alone plan. The plan is that God himself exalts his people when God himself exalts his Messiah. It is also that God himself holds his people until that time by God's own strength. We're going to see God's own strength and promises on display in this passage, more than we're going to see how great David is and how bad Saul is. That brings us... To our first point, by way of introduction and taking the context of all that we've read in 1 Samuel already into account, the first point is going to be this. David clings to the Lord's plan for Messiah exaltation. And so what does it look like to belong to the better plan for redemption, the only one that will work, the one worked by God and God alone? What does it look like to belong to that plan? It means that even though we are tempted to doubt God's plan for glory and blessing and tempted to find a better way, we will cling to God's plan for Messiah exaltation. Though the temptation will be difficult to find our own way. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 26. It's 1 Samuel chapter 26. Begin reading at verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came, out, came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, And to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, 
Who will go down with me into the camp of, to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it. Nor did any awake. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. We're going to leave there for a moment. This isn't the first time that David is presented by God with King Saul sleeping helpless at his feet. Once before, David finds Saul sleeping in a cave unguarded. This is the man who had hunted him like a dog. King Saul is participating in humiliating David and making him suffer greatly. And God has promised to exalt David, to lift him up to the throne. He has promised him that he wouldn't need to take the throne from Saul, whom God had anointed to the throne as an example of a human king. David will not need to take the throne. It will be given to him by God. But here David is again presented with a very real option for fast-forwarding that plan of his own exaltation, of his own lifting up, for ending this chapter of suffering and humiliation in his life. He's presented with this option. But in order to take that option, David would have to reject God's Messiah plans. Remember that God's plan for the exaltation of his people is to exalt them when he exalts his Messiah. This man represented by, chosen by God and represented the people of God. And David dares not reject God's Messiah-exalting plan. Now, this passage has sometimes been used to say that you cannot criticize or remove a pastor. That would be true if the pastor was a Messiah. He is not. David and Saul were little M messiahs. They were anointed kings of God's people whom God had given his people to possess, to redeem, to lead. And David, David's son Jesus is the ultimate and great and final Messiah, the big M Messiah. So to David to kill Saul would be rejecting God's plan of Messiah exaltation and he wouldn't want to do that brothers and sisters we're going to face a special kind of suffering 
which is connected to belonging to the Lord. And it might be the hatred of others for us being Christians. But it may also be the call to self-denial. Where the only way to avoid suffering or pain is to sin. To disobey what God has commanded. Now holiness often means self-denial. And we're going to be tempted to reject that call to comfort ourselves or to remove suffering or loneliness or to increase enjoyment and to engage in sinful practices in order to decrease suffering or increase pleasure or comfort. Think of sexual sin or greed or gossip or laziness or dishonesty. And we are called to trust that our ultimate exaltation, the, the ultimate removal of all pain, the ultimate re, um, removal of suffering and humiliation, that that will happen, but that will ultimately happen when we meet Christ face to face, and then when Christ comes, he returns in glory. And we are called to trust and hope in that. And we'll be presented with opportunities to sort of short-circuit that and say, no, I want my exaltation now. I want the end of my suffering to come now. I want my pleasure now, and I'm willing to sin in order to get that. But God calls us to wait and hope in his Messiah-exalting plan. Wait for the day when I exalt my Messiah and all his people with him even though you will be tempted to short-circuit that plan. Waiting for Jesus, the full and final and great Messiah, to return in glory is God's plan for us to cling to this hope. And God himself will hold us through that. That brings us to our second point. And that is clinging to God in the midst of idols. We see David is clinging to God in the midst of idols. The next two episodes in this historical account, they show an incredibly stark contrast between David and Saul. On one hand, David is driven out of the people of God. He's essentially condemned to worship idols. We'll see actually that in the text. He's condemned to worship idols along with the enemies of God. Except he clings to the Lord even in the middle of idols. But Saul, on the other hand, is within the people of God, in the land of God, and he still seeks out a way to worship idols. Both of them are hard-pressed, and both seek the Lord, and they do not get the answers they want. They feel abandoned by God even. David, though, feels he has nowhere else to go. And he continues to cling to God. And Saul gives up and seeks the help of a false religion. Let's read, continue reading in verse 13, and we're going to read to the end of, actually, the end of chapter 27. Uh, Verse 13, sorry, all right. Then David went over, the, uh, uh, went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. Remember, he's just taken Saul's stuff. 
proving that he had the opportunity to kill him, but did not. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the, kings, for the king of Israel has come out to see, seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David, and you will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath, And David lived with Achosh at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Jeshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments. And come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah. Or against the Negev 
of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man or woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell us about it, and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines, and Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. We'll stop there. So David is essentially falsely excommunicated by the leader of God's people. He's told that he cannot worship God with his people. You're on your own. You might as well worship idols. Go serve other gods, as it says in verse 20. And yet, David refuses to do so. Dwelling away from the people of God, waiting for God to answer his prayers. But God appearing to be silent. He's encouraged by idol worshipers to join them in rejecting the Lord God and the Lord's people. And yet he cannot bring himself to do so. We see those towns that are listed, the ones he actually attacked, were actually towns of the enemies of God's people. The towns that he pretended to be attacking were Israelite towns or the towns of Israel's allies. He's encouraged to wage war against the people of God. But instead, he does what the Messiah is supposed to do. And he wages war against the enemies of God, bringing justice for their wickedness against God and God's people. He doesn't keep his assignments from the pagan king. But instead, helps, he keeps the assignments of the Lord God, whom he clings to even when it appears God is slow in keeping his promises and answering his prayers. Now, David does show himself to be weak and sinful, a weak and sinful human who needs redemption. Rather than being honest about his loyalty to the Lord, he pretends that he is destroying the people of Israel. Now, it should be noted that theologians, righteous theologians, responsible ones, can't agree on whether that deception was a righteous thing for David to do or not. You know, in war, can you deceive your enemies? So that's not clear. David had the right and responsibility as the Messiah to bring judgment on God's enemies. That was for sure. In fact, Saul was once told to do this. However, in this case, David's motivation in killing all the adults is to preserve his own life. To make sure that they can't bear witness about what he has done. And so that is not messianic. What we see is that David despaired even of life. He did resort to sinning to preserve his life, showing a weak faith and showing that he too needed atonement for sin from a greater Messiah. But nevertheless, even while falling into sin and despairing for his life and having weak faith, it was God's Spirit that preserved David's weak faith, weak as it was in the moment. He continued to hope in the Messiah plans of God, and he couldn't abandon God. God's Spirit would not permit it. 
So brothers and sisters, though a person who trusts in the Lord Jesus may have weak faith, may despair even for life, may even fall into sin, God's Spirit will not fully nor finally let you fall away. He will preserve the faith of his own in God's Messiah promises. In the midst of idols, while waiting for the promises of God to come true, God's people cling to him because it's his spirit that's actually clinging to them, weak and sinful as they are. And that brings us to our third point, which would be, we'll call clinging to idols in the midst of God. And there are those who are among the people of God who are not actually his people. Not actually part of his plan to redeem them by his own power. People who are not trusting in a salvation that is of God and God alone. Yet for a time they look like the people of God. While David longs to be part of the people of God while he is away from them, he longs to be with them. He clings to God even when he is away from God's people. And even when God seems to not be hearing his prayers. But Saul represents the opposite picture. He's among the people of God. He has killed the prophets and priests who would give him the word of God. And God is now not answering Saul's prayers. And instead of repenting and clinging to God, he resorts to sorcery to get what God would not give to him. And so we're going to continue reading. We're going to read chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. And the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know that what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. 
When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me? By bringing me up. Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him. For he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul. And when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life into my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him. And he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread, uh, baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it, in, she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and they went away that night. As you see Saul engaging in the help of idol worshipers, pagan worshipers, essentially a witch, and then afterward, having this meal of fellowship with her. We see often that after a sacrifice or a religious, religious ritual, the meal afterwards was to represent fellowship with those people and also with that God. And so we see the work of the Holy Spirit with Saul was not a redeeming work within him. It was only God working in him to lead and rescue God's people. God had used a donkey in a similar way. And now he even uses a pagan witch to accomplish his purposes. We're not seeing the redemptive work of the Lord in Saul. But the Lord's work in David was a permanent saving work. The kind of work which he would do with his spirit within all, within all who are saved by the great Messiah, David's heir, the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw this in David's, uh, David's anointing, where it says that the spirit rushed upon him from that day forward. But it's not so with Saul. Outside of, the, of, of God's people, the spirit made David cling to God. While Saul, inside the land, amongst the people of God, finds a way to cling to idols, witches or mediums, those who claim to communicate with the dead by supernatural powers, are forbidden by God. 
And they can certainly not disturb dead Christians and bring them from heaven. That is not what is happening. This woman appears startled at what was happening. It appears it wasn't normal for her to have this kind of success. What is more likely happening is, just as before, God is controlling a demon to torment Saul by quoting an old prophecy which Samuel made and then predicting David's death. Recall when God rejected Saul, he sent him a terrorizing spirit upon Saul. This looks at it as a very similar situation. And God has shown in this book to be in control of the evil spirits who harass King Saul. The medium is certainly not in, in control of these things. And so the point here is that God is handing Saul over to the desires of Saul's heart. He's handing him over to wickedness. Saul proved he was not truly of the Lord because when the Lord didn't answer him, instead of repenting and, and persisting, he simply went somewhere else. If God won't help me, I'll find some spirit who will help me. But David couldn't do this. The Holy Spirit's working him just wouldn't permit him to do it. When David felt rejected by God, he would say things like, where else can I go? There's nowhere else. I will wait on God even when he doesn't seem to answer my prayers. But Saul represents those who seem to belong to God, but who are simply hoping God will bless their plans, hoping for God to help them. A relationship with God which depends on their own glory, their own worthiness. And these people are, are often happy to worship God, but would be just as happy to worship a false God if God isn't working. Or when God doesn't approve of their choices, I'll just find another God or another way to worship God. And they don't cling to God because the Spirit of God is not working within them. They do not feel like David, who thought there was nowhere else to go, or Job, when Job in, in Job 13, verse 15 says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Notice that when the ways which God had provided were not available, the prophets of God, Saul attempted to hear from God through pagan practices. He was trying to reach Samuel, which is a prophet of the Lord, and did so the way that pagans worshipped or sought supernatural help. Although he was doing it essentially in the name of the Lord. He was trying to get a word from the Lord, but using a pagan practice to do so. Now, this is very similar to the Israelites waiting at the base of Mount Sinai. While Moses, the prophet of the Lord, he took too long on the mountain. Remember, they're waiting for him. They're getting impatient. They couldn't wait for the means which God had provided for them. Moses was taking too long to come down from the mountain with the word of God. The means which God had provided were not enough. They were not fast enough. They were not dramatic enough. So instead, they attempted to worship the Lord God the way that the pagans worshipped. They're false gods by making golden calves. But doing it in the name of the Lord. And this is often the first step from, of, of falling away. The first step toward indicating that it's not really the Lord whom you actually belong to. 
it's not really the Lord who is your great desire. First, you claim to worship the Lord. You claim to seek him, but you find his ways, the ways that he has provided you, his scriptures and his people and prayer, you find those unsatisfactory. And so you attempt to worship him the way that pagans do. The charismatic movement has done just that. Adopting pagan practices, pagan forms of prophecy, pagan forms of visions in the name of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what he has provided is not satisfactory to you. And the next step simply shows that it is not really God you loved and belonged to, but, to, but supernatural experiences or some sort of religious comfort is what you wanted most. And if God won't give it to you, when you want it and how you want it, I'll just go somewhere else. Brothers and sisters, you have seen many turn away if you have been a Christian for some time. And you've seen both of these things. People getting tired of waiting on God, unsatisfied with the worship which he has provided to meet with him and delight in him and to know him, and then adopting forms of worship and prayer which look more like the dark arts. And you've seen people repent of this, but you've seen others not repent and keep going headlong into it. But you've also seen people turn away from the Lord altogether, who for a time looked like they were part of God's salvation through the great Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It it looked like they were hoping in God's Messiah exaltation. But in the end, they simply wanted God to bless their own efforts for salvation. They wanted Jesus to help them be saved. They wanted God to help them feel spiritual. They they were not really entrusting their souls to Christ. They would have wanted to help him save them, but maybe not to belong to him. They couldn't wait for God's plan to exalt them in Christ on the last day. And so they went somewhere else. So brothers and sisters, this would certainly happen to you as well. It will certainly happen to you as well if it could happen. But if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, it cannot happen. Because he will hold you fast the way that he held David fast. The redemption which would come through David's throne, which Jesus would work, was one which depended fully on the worthiness of God and on God's own promises. It is a faith which trusts that Jesus doesn't simply help people be saved from sin, but out on the cross he bore our sin and took the damnation from God, which we deserved, so that we wouldn't have to, and then he personally conquered death for us by rising from the dead on the third day. Now, if your faith is in Christ, to reconcile you to God by his death, then it cannot fail because the work of God's spirit in that messianic plan is permanent and it depends not on your worthiness or your ability to keep your promises to God, but it depends on God's worthiness and his ability to keep his promises to you. But if your faith is more like the faith of 
in, in Saul's messiahship. One which allows a person to get some of the glory. One which God is merely helping you and where God is faithful as long as you are worthy. Where God is blessing your efforts. A God who saves good people. That faith cannot save and it cannot keep you. Consider this, if Saul was able to pass his throne onto his son, remember it was conditional promise. If you are faithful, then you will reign and I'll pass your throne on. Who would have gotten glory for that? It would have been Saul and God. But for David to pass his throne onto his son, it was not based on his own worthiness, but God's own promise. Saul's throne died with him. But David's throne endured forever because it depended on the promises of God. And when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared as the son of David, he took on the full responsibility of saving all those whom God the Father gave him. It fully rested on him completely. He obeyed the law of God on our behalf, satisfying the law's good demands. He, then he bore the wrath of God, which we deserved on the cross for our sins, satisfying the good and just righteousness of God. And then he sent his spirit to give us faith and unite us to himself in a permanent way so that even though we suffer and are tempted and we go through trials, even though we are weak, weak in faith and fall into sin, he will keep us. And when faced with our sin, and faced with the fact that God does not approve of our sin, we will not turn from God to another who will approve. But we will say, like the disciples, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So brothers and sisters, though it feels at times like God is not hearing your prayers and that he has rejected you, though it feels like his promises are slow, you can know for certain that if your faith is indeed in the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection, you can know that his promises are sure and that he will hold you to the end. Do not turn anywhere else. Saul's life shows the foolishness and the wickedness of that, as foolish as turning to a witch. So do not have the kind of faith which Saul's reign personified, a, a faith which seeks God's help and blessings, but doesn't wish to belong to him, doesn't entrust one's soul to Christ. David's throne endures forever because it depends on the worthiness and faithfulness of God alone. And that throne is Jesus Christ's to inherit. And so the salvation which Christ works is just like his reign. It depends on the worthiness and faithfulness of God, not upon the people he saves. He will hold you fast. He will hold fast those whose faith is in Christ and Christ alone. 
There is no such promise for people who are just trusting Christ to help them be saved. But there is a sure promise for those who are entrusting their souls to Christ for salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see your plan unfold through history, personified by these two men, David and Saul, Lord, and we are grateful that you raised up the throne of Saul as a demonstration, as a rejection of the plan that we probably would have preferred and asked, why didn't you do that one? So we can see why you didn't establish that way, that throne and that reign. And Lord, we are grateful that your plan endures even though we are weak and sinful, Lord, and our faith is often extremely weak. Lord, I pray that you would help us to wait on the promises that you have secured for us in Christ. Lord, that we would endure in faith and patience, waiting for the day of our own exaltation, which will be when you exalt Christ, the great Messiah, and he returns in glory. And Lord, let us not turn to anyone or anything else but hope in your plan for salvation. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.